Our guest this evening, this is the first live UK event he has ever done. So we are privileged. We were the first, which is, which is amazing. He served 20 years as a Navy SEAL officer, 20 years in the US Navy SEALs. He's collaborated with the likes of Simon Sinek, Andrew Huberman. He's a big deal in the US. He's the author of the book, The Attributes, which I've got to hear. 25 attributes for optimal performance based on Navy SEALs, but also in terms of any environment. He's also set up the organization, the attributes, and goes in now to companies like yours and organizations like yours and helps them understand what attributes the teams have and how they can leverage them for the greater good. I've spent approximately over Teams, Zoom, and last night over dinner, I've spent about two and a half hours with this individual, and I can tell you he is phenomenal. We are incredibly lucky to have him this evening. Hopefully, my part will do it justice. But please give it an amazing welcome to the incredible Rich Davini. All right. Thanks, everybody. It's, a great, it's great to be here. Um, so uh, before we get started, a little bit about myself. Uh, yes, I was a Navy SEAL for 20, just under 21 years. Obviously, the war started in 01, so it was a very kinetic career that we none of us anticipated. Started working in the leadership uh, space, but really kind of delved into this performance space and in 2021. I really started to dive into these attributes. What, what are the qualities that make up the highest performing teams? What are those things that cause teams to do what they do? Decided to write a book on these attributes because I realized that a lot of businesses and organizations were having some of the same problems that we were having, kind of defining performance. And how do we, how do we actually identify those qualities that actually define performance at very elemental levels? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, looking forward to getting into it with you. And we'll have Q&A and everything. I was actually asked when I got out of the, te the teams what the, what the biggest adjustment I had was. And, um, and when I thought, as I thought about it, I said, you know, it's probably the time the time thing, and, and the time thing, the, the reason why that is because there's, there's actually three types of time. There's military time, there's civilian time, and there's Navy SEAL time. So military time is basically if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. Um, civilian time is anywhere between start time and 15 minutes, you're fine. Um, and then there's Navy SEAL time, which is plus or minus 30 seconds. Um, and, and that's literally how we used to plan our, our helicopters. Like our helicopters would be like, hey, we will be there at, you know, 134 plus or minus 30 seconds. And so, so I recognize, you know, as I got in the civilian world, that's somewhat unrealistic. But um, just know I'm, I'm kind of wired that way. So that's uh, any of you who want to try out the plus or minus 30 seconds, you know, clock, just feel free to do that. So, Lisa, yeah. we, we've, abso <laughs> we've absolutely nailed it today, haven't we? Plus or minus 30 seconds. I've been on them all day. We, yeah. It's been like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. What's amazing about Rich is I've met him twice, and he has been around 25 seconds early every single time. Yeah. Absolutely sticks, you know what I mean? The first one we've got, Rich, is self-efficacy. Yeah. A belief in one's ability to achieve a goal, especially when the path is uncertain or unknown. I'm going to make a statement at this point. I hope the team agrees. I scored myself high on this. Mm -hmm. If there's one of the 25 that I, I think I'm strong in, it's this one. Almost delusionally. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that a problem or no? Is that I mean, obviously you've you've made you've made a good go of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Self-efficacy is uh, is in fact it's an interesting one because it's a combination of a few again kind of like perseverance. It's a combination of um, of confidence, initiative, and optimism. And so it's self-efficacy is the you have the confidence to know I can do this. You know you have the initiative to get started. 
and then you have the optimism or the realistic optimism that as you go through, you will figure it out along the way. And so um, now those, those other attributes, other than initiative, which is not really an attribute, but, uh, but certainly confidence and optimism are in fact attributes and they're part of the, the new list of 42 that we have going. Um, but, but on their own, they can be fairly inert. In other words, um, just confidence on its own is not gonna get you anywhere. I can be very confident I can do something. If I don't have the initiative to get started or the optimism, it's not gonna work, right? I can have just initiative, and that's just like frenetic energy. Like I'm just going with no, no direction. Um, I can have just optimism, which is great, but I can, you know, that's me planting a garden and saying there will be no weeds, there will be no weeds. There's gonna be weeds, right? So, so, there's, a, so there's a combination in self-efficacy that allows us, which I imagine most of you in this room are fairly high on, um, that allows us to say, I know I can do this. Um, I have the initiative to get started, and I have the realistic optimism that as I go, I'll figure it out along the way. So um, it's got to be present in most what you would deem successful people, or certainly driven people. Yeah. That inner belief that I can do this. If you're slightly delusional like me, you watch Netflix programs around courtroom dramas, and you go with your Pringles and your and your glass of wine on a Friday night, and you go, I could do that. Yeah. But that's actually narcissism. All right. Okay. We'll come to that. <laughs> we'll come to that. We'll come Remind to me of that yeah. when we get back. Okay. So the second uh, the second attribute on the drive is discipline. There is an old saying that discipline beats motivation any day of the week. Mm -hmm. However, you say the ability to remain focused and steadfast to achieve a result. So discipline's a really interesting one um, because, you know, that's the definition, um, but there's, it actually breaks into a couple categories, and this is really important for us to dissect our own performance. There's what I call inner discipline and outer discipline, okay? Inner discipline, which we also labeled self-discipline, okay? But inner discipline involves the, uh, the ability to to pursue and achieve goals that we set that the outside world has no say in whether or not we accomplish, right? So that'd be like, um, I'm gonna choose to eat healthy and get in shape, okay? I could make that decision. I could be in Las Vegas next week and at the buffet, the buffet is not gonna throw pastries at me, okay? It's, it's all on me, okay? Outer discipline are, have to do with those goals and accomplishments that we set that the, outer, that the external world has a say in whether or not we accomplish, right? That's becoming a Navy SEAL, starting a business, writing a book, you know, becoming a singer. The outside world has a say. The outside world's gonna throw things at you that you're going to have to navigate. Um, uh, and so, so discipline as an attribute, you wanna, there's a constancy in, there's, a, there's an understanding, okay, these are the wickets I have to, uh, have to do, and I'm, I'm disciplined in my, in my achievement of that. But we have to be very aware of our levels of self-discipline or inner discipline and outer discipline. So the way this manifests, I have known these types of people who are very high on inner discipline and low on outer discipline. Um, these are, at least the, the folks I, I recognized were, were guys who um, everything about their life was organized. They were in super shape. They worked out at the same time. They ate the same thing all the time. They, I mean, they, everything about their inner, their lives was completely like structured and organized. Um, they couldn't accomplish an external goal to save their lives, right? There's a reason for that because if you're too high on self-discipline and too low on, on outer discipline, you are likely married to structure and routine. Routine is the key to self-discipline. So those of us who are low on self-discipline, routine's the key, right? But those people who are really high, when routine is broken, um, it's difficult for them to adjust, right? Then you have people who are high on outer discipline, low on inner discipline. That I would th throw myself into that category. I'm very good at setting and achieving external audacious goals. When it comes to the self-discipline stuff, like I, I always joke, like I don't, I hate to be told what to do, even when I'm the one telling myself what to do, right? <laughs> um, 
So the way I adjust that is I have to add routine and structure into my, but I'm really good in an unstructured environment. I mean, I'm actually most comfortable. But as soon as someone says, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this, I'm like, whoa, 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 don't tell me what to do, right? Which is why the military actually helped with my self-discipline, because in some cases, not, I mean, at least in the early days, you know, the, certainly SEAL training, like, hey, do this. And I was like, okay, well, I kind of have to. And so, and so that's, the, that's kind of the discipline as an attribute. So look at it in terms of, so as you answer, just think about your discipline and, and give yourself an answer overall. But I just ask you to start thinking about your own levels of self-discipline versus, or inner discipline versus outer discipline, and if, if those are imbalanced in any way. Awesome. Moving on, mm -hmm. open-mindedness. Yeah. I did Richie's test online. I did them all before I came here, and I'm going to be open. This was the lowest score I received. Mm, Open-mindedness. Yeah. A willingness to consider and accept new ideas, opinions, or perspectives. Yeah. Don't laugh. <laughs> um, I, sc I scored low on this, Rich, and it made me flinch. I was like, I'm okay with new ideas and people's alternative opinions. I know but I am. But am I? Yeah. You know, it's like... I don't think I am. Naturally. Well, it's, so first of all, it's 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 impossible to be high on all of these attributes. We're going to be low on some. It's really a matter of understanding where we stand, where we sit. Open, there's a open mindedness. It's a, there's a passivity to open mindedness. Okay, so so how how uh, effectively are you able to just sit and passively be open to other perspectives? Right. This is different than curiosity, and I didn't I didn't put curiosity in the book, but curiosity is another attribute. Curiosity and open mindedness are, mindedness are different. Right. Curiosity. There's a proactiveness. To curiosity. So the, the example would be, you know, we go to Thailand and we uh, we meet our local friend there, and our local friend says, "Hey, I'm going to take you to the most authentic Thai restaurant." And you are like, "Cool, let's do it." Right? That's open-mindedness. Or we go to Thailand, we go to our local friend, and we say, "Take us to the most authentic Thai restaurant." That's curiosity, right? So so you may be high on curiosity and a little bit lower on open-mindedness, you know, which could be dangerous, but we'll talk about that later. But um, um, but really, it's just how how willing how 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 willing are you to accept? perspectives. Now, you are, I, I know because I know you now, you're high on adaptability. High adaptability actually helps with low open-mindedness, right? Because you are able to effectively shape and, and move in environments that are changing. So, so being, high, being high on open-mindedness and low on adaptability, you'll probably be okay, right? Because they, they actually buttress each other to a, to a degree. So it's probably why you haven't really, you didn't really realize it because you're probably high on one and low on the other. Makes sense. I yeah. feel better now. Yeah. <laughs> High on adaptability. Yeah. So uh, this one is an interesting one, and I really want to drill it because mm -hmm. it's something that comes with a negative connotation. You talk about it in the book as one of the things the Navy SEALs excelled in in terms of an attribute, cunning. Mm -hmm. Cunning has a negative connotation. It's like sneaky. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. insincere. However, what you say is, as an attribute, cunning is the ability to consider problems and circumstances from unusual and unorthodox perspectives in order to achieve a goal or objective. Yeah. yeah. You rate this as a, it can be a strength. Well, so, I, so what I try to do with all this stuff is I try to take the judgment out. There's only one species on this planet that judges, and that's humans, right? No one else, no, no other species judges things bad or good. You know, the whole bad or good concept is all a human uh, creation and so and so something like cunning, which is quite literally the ability to think outside the box, right? It can be used malevolently, right? In a bad way, it can be used benevolently, right? So so I mean, um, Bernie Madoff was cunning in a bad way. Oscar Schindler was cunning in a good way, right? So so cunning really at, at its generic base level is how am I thinking about a problem? The cunning mind approaches a problem. By the way, cunning always involves a problem, right? There's always something to solve. And a cunning mind approaches a problem and immediately asks three questions. The first question is, um, are there rules and boundaries? 
The second question is, are they real or are they perceived? And the third question is, if they are real, what happens if I break them? And the cunning mind begins to look at ways around outside the box. And, and it is a key attribute, especially in an environment where you know, uh, you, you need to think outside the box, which is most environments. I think, you know, again, we'll talk a little bit about competitiveness. Typically, the competitive, uh, the competitive environments, cunning is, is, a, is a bad thing because it, it, it implies that you're not following rules, right? But in non-competitive environments, which actually business is, business is not a win or lose thing. Business, you know, you don't win or lose in business, right? So, so cunning is actually going to be applied in a, very, in a very good way. So it's really just the way we think about problems. Just name them three principles again in terms of cunning. Yeah. Um, uh, are, uh, approaching a problem. What are the rules and boundaries? Yeah. Are they real or are they perceived? Yeah. And if they are real, what happens if I break them? We've got a lot of cunning people in this audience. Yeah. Pressure rooms today, they were the three questions most people were asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can I break the rules? Yeah. How can I get this done faster? Just explain that to me again. Yeah. What you're saying is that they're really fruitful for tackling problems. Of course. Yeah, yeah. They, they're, they're, they, they're totally thinking outside the box. Yeah. From one to another, narcissism. Yes. I scored the lowest on open-mindedness and the highest on narcissism. <laughs> So narcissism is the desire to stand out, to be noticed, <coughs> or to be recognized. Yes. So narcissism generally, because we have co-occurring disorders and we have narcissistic personality, personality disorder, yes. yeah. we have the dark triad, we have psychopathy, right. we have Machiavellians, and we have narcissists. And if you score high, extreme on the scale, it's a very bad thing. Yes. But in a, in a, in a nice dose of narcissism, moderate dose, it can be an advantage. So yeah, so, so the DSM-5, which is the psychological Bible, outlines narcissistic personality disorder. Whenever we hear narcissism, we think automatically narcissistic personality disorder. But narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder only affects about 6% of the population. Um, when you go to that DSM-5, because I bought a copy and I looked at it, and you go to that page, it, there's about nine criteria that you look at. And the, the doctor is supposed to look at those nine things and answer for the patient, yes or no, and if, I guess the, 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 the rules are if the doctor can answer yes to five or more of the nine, the patient is considered disordered, right? And so I, I got a copy of this, I started looking at the nine, and as I looked at the nine, I will say that I did not say yes to five or more, okay? However, when I was reading those, those uh, criteria, I wasn't innocent of everything I was reading. So I was like, well, sometimes I think this, sometimes I feel this. So then I went to the basic definition of narcissism. Narcissism at its basic level is the desire to stand out, be recognized, be adored, right? Be made feel special, right? Um, every single human being on this planet at some point in our lives wants to stand out, be recognized, be adored, be made feel special. It's a very human thing. When we are infants and we are being adored by our parents, we are getting bursts of dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, hugely powerful positive chemicals, right? It feels good. It also feels good when we're adults. And so, so narcissism metabolized correctly is often the impetus to some very audacious goals. I always, I, you know, when I looked at that, that uh, DSM-5, I said to myself, okay, why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? You know, and I thought back, and I was like, of course I was a patriot, I wanted to serve my country, but I was a 22-year-old kid, and when I was really honest with myself, I said, well, I, I kind of wanted to see if I could be a badass. You know, that's why I wanted to try. And then I asked my buddies, why do they become Navy SEALs? And of course they said, yeah, I'm a patriot and all that stuff, but I also wanted to see if I could be a badass. There's a narcissistic thread there that causes us to want to be the best teacher, the best Navy SEAL, the best whatever, um, and it's not a bad thing. And so the key to, to narcissism is to metabolize it correctly, metabolize it effectively, and um, 
surround ourselves with people. The, the antidote to going too high is surrounding ourselves with people that tell us the truth and keep us humble, right? So, so you, can, you can spot the classic narcissist, the disordered narcissists, by who they surround themselves with. They're always surrounding themselves with sycophants who bend the knee, who, who say, tell them everything you want to hear. Um, Donald Trump, uh, Vladimir Putin. I mean, there's, these, are, these are classic narcissists, right? Um, if we, uh, and oh, by the way, when someone leaves that group, because you, you can't bend the knee for, for, forever, right? When someone leaves that group, that person becomes immediately enemy number one to that narcissist. That's what happens, right? So, so we can actually, by looking at the people we surround ourselves with, understand how to metabolize our narcissism in an effective way. You know, you, yes, you're high, but your wife probably keeps you pretty humble. She does. Yeah, as does your team. So, they yeah. too. <laughs> the next T2 Leadership Retreat will take place on the 7th to the 9th of May, 2024. To book your place on the ultimate leadership development experience from the People Performance People, or for more information, please visit www.trans2performance.com. Uh, in line with my opening statement this morning, I promise you it is not aligned, but it's, uh, it, it's just something that aligns. You say leadership is not a position, it's a behavior, and you don't get to decide if you're doing it well. Mm -hmm. We started off with that mantra this morning. Yeah. Um, leadership attributes are incredibly important, but you will fundamentally be judged by others. Yes. You can't call, you're, we're not allowed to self-designate. In other words, we can't call ourselves a leader. That'd be like calling yourself good-looking or funny. Other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow, and it's based on how you behave. And these behaviors stem from these very basic attributes. Number one, empathy. Yeah. The ability, whether deliberate or not, to join the emotional state of another person, to feel what someone else feels. Yeah. Uh, very important in leadership, uh, because if you are able to do this, the person you're doing it for and with will immediately feel, feel cared for. Um, and and the, the thing about empathy we have to understand is, first of all, it's not... It's not necessarily easy, and uh, it does not require agreement. As leaders, it's really important that we make an effort to empathize, even if we don't agree, and this can be hard. I, I tend to try to look at people who have completely opposite views, because I've, I've always been working on my empathy. I really have. I mean, my wife is extremely empathetic, and I've always tried to work on it, but I try to look at people who have the, uh, like the polar opposite views and really say to myself, okay, why might how they might how might they feel this way right and i don't have to agree with it but i try to make the effort if you do that with it for another human being they will feel cared for you know it's really important it's an amazing quality in a leader yeah next one selflessness placing the needs and well-being of others above one's own despite a real or perceived risk does the perceived or real risk have to be involved to be selfless? Yes. yes. Yeah. So this is the difference between generosity and selflessness. Generosity, also an attribute, but generosity is, um, is, uh, it can be riskless, right? So this is, this is any one of us walking along the street, we see a homeless person um, and we give them $10, right? All of us were like, that, that's generous, but it's no, there's no risk. Now, where it becomes selfless is that, that homeless person takes that $10 and runs over to another homeless person and gives that homeless person $10 because that involves a risk. And so, and so this is why selflessness, not generosity, is a leadership quality, okay? Generosity doesn't do it, right? Here's another example, okay? Um, you have two friends, okay, and you're getting ready to move. And one friend says, hey, I will contribute $5,000 to your moving effort and you know, get the moving van, all that stuff. You're like, great. And the other friend says, you know what? I'm going to come over when, on the day of uh, you're going to move. I'll help you pack. I'll help you load the van. I'll drive to your new place. I'll help you unload and unpack, right? Six months later, those both people ask you for a favor at the same time. Which one are you going to do the favor for? 
Not the person who gave the money. You're going to do the favor for the person who was selfless, gave up their time, gave up their effort. This is the risk, right? So risk doesn't have to be risking my life or anything that extreme. It can be, but even just risking, even just giving your time. You know, it's time is a commodity that it evens us all out. All of us have the same amount. <laughs> you know, when we give it up, when we give it up, we can't get it back, right? So, so that type of, of a behavior is what's what's selfless and is a leadership behavior. Moving on quickly, because I want to leave, leave a lot of time at the end for Q&A and really get stuck into some stuff. Yeah. Authenticity. A lot of people talk about authentic leadership. Be yourself. You've yeah. got to be a believable, authentic leader. You say the degree to which a person's actions are consistent with his or her beliefs, values, and desires, despite external pressures. Mm -hmm. This is really simple and straightforward. It's how you behave with everybody in your span of care. Authenticity is just consistency in how you behave across all spectrums with everybody. Yeah, we have a we have a person in the room today called Lee Radford who thrives on being authentically grumpy, and uh, you've just met his <laughs> you've just met his experience, I think, because it's, uh, yeah. it's uh, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay, next one: decisiveness, the ability to make decisions quickly and effectively. Yeah. So, uh, so decisiveness is an attribute. Making decisions is a skill. So in other words, you can teach people how to make better decisions. There's a process by which you can help people learn that. Decisiveness adds that speed and efficiency to the, to the, to the equation, right? And so decisiveness, really decisiveness, what that is, it's, a, it's an external expression. It's an external expression of compartmentalization. How effectively are you able to collate information, prioritize, and then act, okay? Um, and, and again, um, there's a balance there, but in general terms, those leaders who are indecisive and or make long protracted decisions that you're just like, okay, come on, do something. We generally don't look at that as as um, as effective leadership. I talked this morning about a, a great leader of mine, Captain Richard Farrington in the Royal Navy, uh, and he made some incredible decisions under pressure. And he always said, there's no such thing as a bad decision. You make a decision, and if it's the wrong one, you make another. Yeah, which uh, gets into the next attribute. Awesome, it's like yeah. we're seeing each other up here, Rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Accountability. Right. Taking responsibility for and ownership of your decisions, actions, and the consequences thereof. Right. Yeah. So, so this is owning it, right? So, so, so proper decisiveness needs to be buttressed by accountability. In other words, I am owning my actions. I'm owning my decisions, good or bad. Um, and, owner, and, and accountability works in a couple ways. First of all, it allows you to effectively adjust if the wrong decision is made or a bad decision. But the way I like to think about accountability is it also allows you to take control. Uh, you know, anytime we place blame on another, we cede control of that environment, that situation. As soon as, you, as soon as you place blame on yourself, you immediately take control. You take control of the environment, you take control of the solution, right? So, so I, there were times where I would, as a leader, very deliberately take accountability for something that I had actually ostensibly no control over, but I knew by taking accountability and saying, hey, I own this, I could then take control and help fix it, right? So, so accountability comes in those, in those forms, and, and typically that's what we see. And leaders who are accountable, who own that stuff, uh, good and bad, are people we tend to follow. Awesome. Yeah. Hope you're all still scoring this. All following <laughs> it, yeah? Okay. Everybody's, everybody's 10 on everything, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> it's getting better as the night goes on. Yeah. So team ability attributes. You say high performing, a high-performing team is defined less by how often it wins than by how often it loses or how well it loses. Yeah, so uh, team ability, and again, I stole that word from the SEALs. I don't know if it's a real word, just really... <laughs> defines how we operate in teams. Um, it's uh, just like leadership, we don't get to call ourselves great teammates. 
our teammates decide whether or not we're great teammates, and they do so based on these key behaviors. Number one, integrity. The ability to act in accordance with relevant moral values and social and cultural norms. Yeah, so integrity, if we were boiled down, it's do the right thing. But here's the, tr here's the trick, and this is really important for all of us to understand, and you can read the chapter to get into depth. Integrity, do the right thing, is subjective to the group. So do the right thing for one group means different, looks different than do the right thing for another group. So do the right thing for a Cub Scout troop looks different than do the right thing for an ISIS troop, okay? However, I will, su I will submit to you, if you have a Cub Scout who steals $5 from his fellow Cub Scout, compared to an ISIS person who runs into a building and clacks himself off, who's acting with more integrity in that situation, right? By, by, by account of the group that ISIS person is, right? So, so, so do the right thing must be clearly and specifically defined by any leader, any organization, any team, because if you don't define what do the right thing looks like, the team will just sort it out on their own. And you may not like the answers. <laughs> so, so integrity is subjective. Sort it out. Make sure it's, make sure it's, um, it's uh, precisely defined. And then that's the, that's the standard by which people will, will judge do the right thing. This one you say is essential for trust within team ability. Conscientiousness. Yeah. The ability uh, and inner drive to work hard, to be diligent, and to be reliable. Yeah. And I think this is incredibly important. If you work with people, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to name Lydia, who, who works at C2. Yeah. If any of you have met, you've met Lydia, she's incredibly conscientious. Yeah. I know that she will, you give her something, she will work hard, she will be incredibly diligent, reliable, and it will be delivered exactly when it needs to be delivered. Yeah. And that fills me full of confidence. Yeah. yeah. Is that the important Yeah, and, and again, this is one that's a combination of a couple of different attributes. Diligence is an attribute. I don't know if reliability or work hard is. However, those things by themselves aren't necessarily good. They, they can be inert, right? You can be, you can be a very hard worker but not be reliable or diligent and it doesn't mean anything. You can be very diligent but not be a hard worker or reliable and it doesn't mean anything. So, so when you start combining these, that's what creates conscientiousness and, and it's, a, it's a really important factor, yeah. Cool, let's move on. Here's a, an interesting one, uh, humility. Mm -hmm. Humility is incredibly important. Uh, the ability to be self-aware, we've worked on this all day, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, yeah. uh, and, tr and transparent about one's strengths and weaknesses. Rich, what we've done today is we've made people at times feel slightly uncomfortable through 360 feedback, through some testing, through some comments, some, you know, discovery, and then we've put them into some pressure situations where they yeah. have to look at themselves. Um, I said this morning, self-awareness is not just the good, that's strength awareness. Right. Self-awareness is everything. It has to be. And I would say um, in, 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 a, in at least a certain context, Navy SEALs are some of the most humble and vulnerable people on the planet is because we define hum humility, which is vulnerability, in, in a different way. It's, it's being transparent about our strengths and our weaknesses. I need to show everything I'm strong at and everything I'm weak at. I need to wear it all on my sleeve. That's how you dynamically subordinate. You cannot dynamically subordinate with a team unless it's all out there. Because you have to know when you're stepping up and when you're stepping back and everybody else has to see that as well. So, so humility allows us to do that and humility also allows us to kind of be a, um, a forever learner, right? Because we know even the masters, the people who are true masters, they, they, I mean, they do things better than anybody but they're always like, well, I can still learn. You know, they're humble about what they can still uh, learn, which is interesting. Is it not human nature, though, that uh, admitting our vulnerabilities and weaknesses is so uncomfortable and alien? Is it not? It is, but again, if, you, if you're in a circle of safety, in an environment of safety and trust, it's actually not uncomfortable at all. Um, those of us who have strong family 
uh, groups, uh, we do that all the time, and we don't think twice about it. You know, those of us who have strong business groups, well, I mean, in SEAL, we would make jokes all the time. I, was like, I suck at that, but I'm good at this, right? And we make jokes about it. Self-deprecating humor can help with this, too. Right? So, so it's all about the environment you create inside your team. And if you create an environment of humility and vulnerability, you will have that. It'll be very natural. But guess what? As leaders, we have to go first, right? If we're not going first, it, it's not going to happen. So, you know, we have to be the first ones to do it. So I'll, I'll, I'll make an honest observation here. Everybody departed after day one. We've been planning this retreat for a while. Um, I tried to do my team debrief at the end of the uh, day. I choked up. I couldn't speak. And Tracy had to bail me out. Yeah. Is that humility? Yeah, yeah. It's also being soft, but that's good. <laughs> no, that's humility because you, but you obviously felt comfortable doing that. You felt comfortable doing that, which is great. We have humility in the sense of environmental humility. Because, you know, if you turn back on the ocean, it's going to kill you no matter how good you are. Um, but we don't have that emotional humility. And I, I would say there's probably a reason for that. You know, we have to, there's a guard we have to keep up. Uh, but I, I uh, have coffee with my guys, the guys I served with are now retired. And we're all retired. And, and those of us who are still getting with each other and, 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 and hanging um, and are healthy are now able to be vulnerable with each other in a way we never were. That's we're cool. actually able to be emotional and talk about our emotions and our feelings in a way we never were. So, yeah, so it's really about the environment you, that's required for you. And I would say, uh, I would say vulnerability in certain environments, it's, a, it's somewhat of a dimmer switch, you know, that you have to just adjust and modulate depending on what you need. Awesome. Yeah. Humor. Let's yes, talk about humor. My favorite. So the humor is the ability to find the funny and laugh even when times are tough. Here in the UK, we have the Royal Marines, and they have their Royal Marines Charter. Mm. One of the seven principles of being a Royal Marine is, uh, you know, uh, it, it's humor in adversity. I th I'm so glad that that's actually Chief on the charter. That's really good, because yeah, yeah. that's not even on the Navy SEAL chart. When, when the bullets are flying, someone will say an inappropriate oh, yeah. joke, and everybody just comes back down to earth. Yeah. We, um, I have never uh, experienced a high-performing team that does not have humor as an element, and there's a reason. So, so in SEAL training, in BUDS, um, one of the things they make you do out there and in San Diego is, is something called surf torture. Surf torture is an evolution where you, you as, a, as a class, you basically all stand up at the edge of the surf zone and you, you link arms. And then when they say you, you all walk out into the surf zone until it's about knee high, and then you turn around and you lay down, right? So you lay back. So you're basically laying in there and the water's crashing over you and they're receding and then crashing over you. You're in there for hours. It's one of the coldest things you'll ever do. A lot of people quit during surf torture, uh, usually done at night. Um, but at some point during surf torture, uh, and you do, they do it several times, but at some point, during, especially during Hell Week, they will, during the evolution, a, an instructor will drive a van up onto the beach there, and they'll get out of that van with a megaphone and say, I have hot chocolate blankets and donuts for anybody who quits right now. Um, and you get a lot of people quitting, a lot of people quitting. And so I remember being in, in Hell Week and being surf tortured, and that, you know, we were miserable, and, um, and that happened. The instructor you know, made that offer, and immediately the guy to my right, he yells back at the instructor and he says, hey, do you have any chocolate glazed donuts? Because if you don't, I'm not quitting. And he burst out laughing and I burst out laughing. And I remember <laughs> feeling like, okay, this is not too bad, right? But then I look at my guy, the guy on my left arm, and he's not laughing at all, right? He's, <laughs> he's lost in his pain. I don't even think he heard the joke, right? And I was like, I said to myself, ah, this, this guy's probably not gonna make it. And within, again, within about a minute, he quits, right? So there's an interesting thing that happens. When we laugh, which is an involuntary response, it's like sneezing. We immediately get juiced with three powerful neurotransmitters. The first is dopamine. We've all heard about dopamine. Huberman talks about dopamine. Dopamine used to be thought of as a reward chemical. Is it in fact, it is in fact a motivation chemical. It tells us this is good, keep doing this. Hugely powerful, feels good, right? So we get dopamine. We get uh, endorphins. Endorphins mask our, our pain, right? So, so in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s, 
uh, neuroscientists were studying the brains of drug addicts. And they, while studying the brain, the human brain, really, uh, they said they found opiate receptors. They said, that's interesting. Why the heck does, human, does the human brain have opiate receptors? It's because we make our own opiates. They're called endorphins. Now, this is, our, this is the, um, the runner's high that we get when we work out. I mean, it, it's, it causes us to be endurance creatures. So it allows us to keep going the long haul. It floods our system. And then finally, we get oxytocin, which is known as a love hormone, although it's not a hormone. It's a neuromodulator, um, which means it affects both the body and the brain. But it's basically the bonding binding chemical. We get huge amounts of oxytocin when we engage in physical contact with other human beings, with our animals. We get it. Uh, acts of kindness and generosity. Uh, conducting those acts, whether you're the, the, the person doing it or the recipient, even witnessing acts of kindness and generosity induce oxytocin. So think about this. When we laugh, not even asking for it, right? Involuntarily we laugh. We get juiced with dopamine, uh, endorphins, and oxytocin. I'm sitting there in the surf zone. I'm miserable. I get more miserable when the instructor makes his offer. My buddy cracks a joke. Suddenly my body says, this is good. Keep doing this. This doesn't feel that bad. We're in this together, right? And so the, so the highest performing teams, the thing I miss most about the SEAL teams, people ask me all the time, it's the humor. We laughed at everything. And, and I always say in the book, I say, honor your class clowns. Every team has a few class clowns. They're the people who make the jokes at seemingly the wrong time, but everybody laughs, right? And those, are, those people are priceless. Humor as an attribute doesn't mean you have to be the class clown. It just means you have to be able to laugh. And we've known, we've seen people that, boy, that guy's not, that guy or gal is not laughing enough. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to make it. You know, you need to be able to laugh. And sometimes the humor is, depending on the, 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 um, the intensity of the environment, sometimes the humor can be quite dark. <laughs> but, um, but it's still funny. A quick example, I was telling my buddy, one of my buddies this, for a fellow SEAL, former SEAL, and he was like, Rich, it's funny, I was, we, were, we were on the way out of a mission in Iraq or Afghanistan, I can't remember where. But we were flying home from a mission. We just conducted one. And the helicopter we were in started crashing, started going down. And so we're all sitting there. And we're sitting there looking at each other. And one of the guys says, well, I guess we're not going to have to clean our weapons tonight. And we all burst out laughing. I was like, this is what I'm talking about, right? You know, that he remembered. And of course, the helo didn't crash. They, get, they recovered and got back. But, uh, but this is the power of humor. So, so we have to have it. It's really essential. We don't have to be serious all the time. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a price in humor, right? Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a value in humor. Are you a fan of our podcast? If so, make sure you're following us on all of our social media channels. You can find us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter by searching Trans2 Performance. By following us, you'll have access to exclusive content, special announcements, and more. Join the T2 community today. You've all scored themselves low, moderate, or high. There is no good or bad, like you say. Right. It's spotting where you are. Where you're moderate, you're okay. Where you're high, leverage it. Where you're low, we need to put ourselves into environments where we can develop that yeah. attribute. That's the fundamental yeah. premise of what we're saying. Well, and I'd say uh, go ahead and take the assessments. The assessments, at least the ones online now, are for the grit, mental acuity, and drive. We where, have some, where can they find them, Rich? So that's theattributes.com. You can find it there. So um, we have a we have a 361 for leadership and team ability. We're in development of a full-blown individual assessment that's going to be a, a, a little bit uh, in the future here, but. Um, Take those assessments, get your scores, index that against your personal scores, and then use that as a start point for, for reflection and introspection. So in other words, if you find yourself low on adaptability, ask yourself, okay, wait a second. When I think about the last time I was in an environment that was changing around me without my control, how did I perform? You know, and be honest with yourself because you may have said, yeah, actually, I didn't like it very much. I don't like that type of thing. You know, that starts to, to inform you. So it's really use this stuff as a snapshot and then introspect on some uh, some experiences that you've had to try to really, you know, get a get a fundamental understanding of where you lie on this stuff. Outstanding, Rich. I'm going to let you take a sip of your beer. 
Oh, thank you. Tracy, three if... More, sorry? Three more. What have we missed, Andrew? Are these, these are known as the others. The others. They were going to be drawn out in questions, Andrew, but seeing as though you've asked it. That's the first question. Yeah. So the first question is, what are these other three, Rich? <laughs> Let's go. Tracy, if you stand by on the microphone as well. Yeah. Listen, guys, we've got, we will answer that, Andrew, because that's a great question. But okay, Rich okay. has offered 20 minutes, half an hour. Yeah. We, we're, we're, we can ask him anything. Are the gloves off, Rich? Gloves are off. Again, if I can't answer it, I just won't answer it. Oh, so, exactly. Yeah. You mentioned shake it off. Um, what if the mental impact is deeper than how you show up? Does we talk about make, uh, resilience, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm getting there. Okay. Um, okay. Does, this make me, does this make my resilience level lower because I don't talk about it? Resiliency is a muscle that can be practiced. Um, and I will say that depending on the trauma, so in the, in the book I talk about a two-minute rule that one of our CEOs talked to us about, which is he basically said, hey, you know, two-minute rule his grandfather taught him. Something bad happens, take two minutes, and just kick the dirt, swear, feel like crap, whatever. Do that for two minutes, and after 120 seconds, get back to work, right? Something great happens. Take two minutes, you know, celebrate, rest on your laurels, do whatever, pat yourself on the back. After two minutes, get back to work, right? What are the fundamental points that you reflect on as an individual, and then how has that impacted you as a professional? I'm really intent on self-introspection um, and, and getting into my head. Uh, so in other words, and, and we, all, we can all see, I mean, the, the, the phones and stuff, I mean, people today, kids today, they're always on their phones, you know, um, I'm always like, okay, I need to take time away from anything, no, no music, nothing, I'm just, I'm in my head, and I think I always make deliberate time to be in my head, so I can work out things, I can process things, I can think, think through ideas. Now, I grew up in, a, in an environment, where we used to go on road trips, long road trips, and there were no Walkmans or, or, or iPods or something. So I'd stare out the window for eight hours in my car, right? So in, 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 the, in the back of the car. So, so I, could st I could still to this day sit in an airplane and just look out the window, you know? In fact, it frustrates me when anybody closes the window shade. I'm like, look, the view, you're missing the whole point. Um, but I think introspection, habits of introspection. And then um, I think one of the keys to, to, um, uh, to success is a, the ability, we talked about this, the ability to delay, delay gratification. Um, in other words, you can say, hey, I don't need the, I don't need the result, that, that, that end state right now. I can actually delay that, and I can actually find, um, uh, find reward in the, in, the mo in the struggle. I think that's something I, I consciously try to reflect on. Navy SEAL, tough environment, high stakes, low information in some cases. Yeah. What process did you used to go through? The first thing we have to do is figure out the environment. Right, and so, and so the question-making process, the habits we create, and, and this is all stuff I had to deconstruct. Huberman and I put this together as we started to dig into this stuff, was, was what we do, what we realize we do is we are in an environment, we immediately say, okay, what about this environment do I understand? That list might be small, okay? And then the next question is, what can I focus on in this moment? You focus on it, you pick your horizon, you move, and then you come back out and you ask the question again. And as you do this process over and over again, you start, one of two things happens, either you, you just keep on doing it, and you suddenly step through the environment. You're done, and you can look back and then interrogate it. Um, or as you do it, your optic of the environment, your understanding of the environment, begins to grow, right? And then, and then the, the the thing is, as usually in our environments, right, it's it's about growing your your situation awareness as you're going through this process. There's going to be a certain point, there's a certain level of information. It's going to be up to you what that level is, your comfort level, that you say, okay, I have enough to make a decision. Um, but the the key is, I've actually been making decisions the whole time because I've been deciding what to focus on, 
right? I'm going to move, hey, do this first, do that. And, then, and every time we do that, by the way, we create a dopamine reward in our, in our neurology. So, so that dopamine reward gives us this feeling, okay, this is good, keep doing this, allows us to do it again and again and again. So, so it's really about just starting to truncate the size of the decisions you're making so that you can start figuring out the environment so that you're just, you're, you're, you're just moving. And as you're moving, you're, you're gaining awareness. And then you're, 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 you're holding yourself accountable too because you may make a movement and realize, oh, that, that wasn't a good movement, let's make another decision. But that's, that's all part of the process. So, so it's really doing it as rapidly as you can. The question for me is in terms of drivers of optimal performance yeah. in leadership, yes. how do you reconcile emotional intelligence in terms of the attributes? Yeah, emotional intelligence is in fact another attribute that we, uh, that we talk about. I just didn't talk about it in terms of optimal performance, and I should, we should probably define optimal performance real quick, but, but let me just talk about this because emotional intelligence defined is uh, the ability to manage our own emotions in the, uh, in the context of us being able to interrelate with other human beings, okay? Um, really powerful attribute, I think, uh, necessary in leadership. The reason why I think I put empathy in the leadership is because because empathy is a little bit more important just in terms of people knowing that you care about them. Um, and this is where it gets really interesting because when you, start, when you start indexing these things together and you ask yourself, okay, can you be high on one or low on another? And you start comparing them, right? So, so someone who is high on empathy, like really high on empathy, but low on emotional intelligence, that's, pers that's a person who typically is, they, they wear the, all of their emotions on their sleeves, right? They have a hard time controlling it. They're often exhausting to, to other people because like they're just... Ugh, it's just everything, right? That's high empathy, low emotional intelligence, okay? High emotional intelligence, low empathy, that's dangerous, okay? Because what happens is that's, if you're, if you're really high on emotional intelligence, really low on empathy, that means you, are, you know exactly how to manipulate people, control your emotions to manipulate others, and you don't care what they feel, right? And so obviously there's a balance there. We have to balance both of them. And being, being moderate on both, but understanding where we fall, uh, is important, but uh, beware of very high emotional intelligence and low empathy, which some leaders have, right? So, so I think from a leadership perspective, empathy is more important, but certainly emotional intelligence helps. Um, and then one thing I will do is I'll define optimal performance because there's a reason. I was always, um, you know, we always hear a lot about peak performance and everything around, you know, is about peak this, peak that. Everyone wants to peak everywhere. And people used to tell me, you know, you Navy SEALs, you're the ultimate peak performers. And I used to disagree with that because I used to say, listen, we're not because peak by definition is an apex. There's only one place you can go from an apex and that's down, right? Peak also often, most of the time, has to be prepared for and planned for and scheduled. So the professional football player plans and schedules his or her entire week so they can peak for three hours on game day, right? That's what happens. We don't get to do that. SEALs don't get to do that. You all don't get to do that. So I said, what we really are are optimal performers. Optimal performance means I'm going to do the very best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in the moment. So sometimes our best could look like peak. It's flow states and everything's clicking and everything's awesome, right? Sometimes our best is I am just head down, nugging it out because that's all I have right now. It's dirty and it's ugly and it's gritty and it's hard. And that is still performing optimally. So optimal performance allows us umbrella underneath which peak lives and, uh, and grinding it out lives, right? And it allows us to celebrate those times when we're actually grinding it out because that is still optimal performance. And the other thing, the final thing that optimal performance allows us to do, which is key for dynamic subordination, is it allows us to do what I call responsible energy management. In other words, I don't have to be peak when I'm driving to the grocery store. Okay? And I, a, a myth I'll bust about Navy SEALs, because you may have seen in the TV or movies, you might see a group of SEALs and they're getting ready to go on a mission, and right before they do, they get in a big huddle and they're like hoo-yawing and yelling and high-fiving like some athletic team getting ready to take sports, so, uh, the, the field, right? That never happens, okay? It never happens. In fact, most of the time we'd be in helicopters flying into combat and the guys around me would be napping. 
they'd be asleep, right? Because we don't know what's coming, right? We don't know what's going to be required for us. We're not going to waste an ounce of energy doing things we don't need to do. So optimal performance allows us to modulate this, this range of energy so that we can go the long, the long game. Ladies and gentlemen, Rich Kavina. Thank you. The next T2 Leadership Retreat will take place on the 7th to the 9th of May, 2024. To book your place on the ultimate leadership development experience from the People Performance People, or for more information, please visit www.trans2performance.com.